Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I didn't realize that your dad is also a software engineer. We, we should start a club of people who've, who've left uh, their parents' dying industry of software engineering for the, the vibrant future in journalism. Yeah, um, my, my idiot sister went into software engineering. So clearly one of us yeah, is winning. Yeah, way to live in the past. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today I am joined by Vox policy writer Jerusalem Demsis. Hello. And ProPublica's Dara Lind. Hello. And for our last episode in our series titled America's Public Health Experiment, and also our last new episode of the year, we're going to be talking about the advice we got from the government throughout the pandemic and why so much of it was so bad. (laughs) We're... Primarily going to be talking about two agencies here. The first is the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is America's main public health agency. It collects data, surveils new diseases, and it's meant to handle disease outbreaks like COVID. Uh, The second agency is the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which is the regulator in charge of approving new tests, new vaccines, treatments for COVID and other diseases. But we're also going to mention a few other actors like Anthony Fauci, who was, of course, sort of the main spokesperson for public health last year, uh, but is at the National Institutes of Health rather than the CDC or FDA. We also might touch on Trump's Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, and his successor under Biden, Vivek Murthy. And the Surgeon General is also not based on the CDC or FDA. It's a sort of complex interagency process, but, but those are sort of the two main ones. The pandemic was the biggest challenge that these individuals and these institutions had ever faced and they made a number of really consequential mistakes. For example, in February and March 2020, CDC Chief Robert Redfield, Anthony Fauci, Surgeon General Adams, they were all advising people not to buy masks for fear that there wouldn't be enough to staff frontline medical workers. And it wasn't just about sort of preserving supply. They would say that masks would not help, that they were not effective at, at preventing COVID at that point. That was, of course, not true. And it seems like they should have known it wasn't true at the time. And after a lot of pushback on this, notably from Zainab Tufekci, uh, who's a columnist at the New York Times, 
by April, the government spokespeople reversed themselves and they were recommending even cloth masks, uh, not even going for the, the higher tech ones, but, but recommending people just use whatever masks they could get their hands on. And their initial bad advice to, to ignore masks and then the swift reversal really hurt their credibility with the public at a, a pretty pivotal moment. And there would be a lot more mistakes. This year, uh, on April 27th, the CDC announced that fully vaccinated people should keep wearing masks even in some outdoor settings, uh, like when you're sort of outside at a bar or, or another crowd. And that was advice that a lot of outsiders and a lot of experts uh, saw as much too strict. And then barely two weeks later, the agency flipped and said fully vaccinated people didn't even have to wear masks indoors, which a lot of the same experts thought went too far in the opposite direction. And it was also just a very confusing and fast uh, turnabout. And unsurprisingly, given how sort of messy the public-facing side of this was, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes trouble. The Trump administration aggressively interfered with the CDC, for example, by deleting guidance that advised against choirs and churches and other places of worship, otherwise sort of inserting the Trump administration's own views in place of what CDC experts were saying. Those experts were not uh, without mistakes. Uh, the CDC lab that was tasked with creating a test for covid completely botched it. They violated sort of basic lab cross-contamination procedure, and that delayed accurate testing by months in the spring of 2020, which was a huge deal. In February of that year, there was an effort to test Americans who'd been evacuated from Wuhan, where the outbreak started, to get a sense of how many of them had been exposed to COVID, how bad this was going to be. The CDC shut it down on, I think, frankly, ridiculous ethical grounds. Um, and that study could have done a lot to tell us about this pandemic as it was like breaking out, and they just refused to do it. And in this long litany of mistakes, I haven't even mentioned sort of turf battles between the CDC and the FDA, FDA blocking testing programs early in the pandemic, and it refusing to speed up trials for vaccines and treatments, on and on and on and on. The point is, there were a lot of mistakes here. These agencies did sort of heroic, important work, but they're also government agencies, and it's important to like look at their record and see what they did wrong. And so we're going to try to do that here today. Jerusalem, what's your basic evaluation of how these these agencies have done? How how serious were these mistakes? How do they balance against some of the successes they've had over the course of the pandemic? I think first is I mean I do a lot of reporting on my own about kind of institutional failure. Um, you know, transit authorities, uh, housing authorities, the federal government's housing response in general and things like that, and just progressive governance and and uh, left governance that's occurred and also institutional governance where there are a bunch of experts and really smart people involved. And one of the most frustrating parts of doing this reporting is that very often everyone is like very aware of all the problems and also very aware of, of a lot of quite simple, uh, and by simple, I mean conceptually simple fixes to make it a better outcome for uh, whatever it is the goal of that organization or institution is. And the second thing is also just like how much institutional inertia there really is to fix these issues. Dylan just went through a litany of different problems here, but I just want to highlight that like the same things that people were talking about a year ago and getting quotes from like very high up individuals in both the government and also in, you know, academia and experts and ep epidemiologists and virologists saying like this is the main problem. The same things are just like still happening today. You know, Zainab Tufetsky just had a column in August of 2021 um, explaining uh, all the ways 
that masking guidance had changed around Delta over the course of just literally four days. On July 21st, the chief medical advisor, Fauci, told CNBC that Delta was, quote, clearly different and that fully vaccinated people might want to consider wearing masks indoors. One day later, the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, says that wearing masks for the vaccinated was a, quote, individual choice and that vaccinated individuals enjoyed an exceptional level of protection. Then, Two days later, Dr. Fauci confirms that bringing back mask mandates are under, quote, active consideration. Then two days after that, Dr. Walensky addresses the issue again and says that Delta is behaving very differently. And the CDC was now recommending that even the fully vaccinated wear masks indoors in public places wherever transmission was, quote, substantial. So th- the point here is not that like, I mean, none, no one on this on this podcast is, uh, you know, as in depth into the research of any of the people I just mentioned. These people are not like somehow like dumber than anyone else here. The problems that are going on here are just like so clearly just like this uh, what what occurs as these institutions sort of get large and lose the ability to sort of govern themselves. And I think it, it's worth taking seriously. And we're going to get into this and we're going to, I'm sure, do a lot of, um, you know, we're going to be really angry about a lot of the, the problems that have occurred here. But I think that like there's this broader question here of like, we don't actually know how to reform institutions like this, despite knowing very clearly a lot of the the specific problems that are in place, both when it comes to messaging, both when it comes to risk tolerance and, and uh, you know, interaction with the public in general. So I think those are kind of my broad senses right now um, after I've spent uh, some time looking into this. I would go even a little further, Jerusalem. I would say, like, it's not just that we don't know how to fix institutions that get themselves in this kind of trouble. We also don't know how to restore the reputation of institutions once it's clear that they do not have public trust. And like, here's where I think the early obvious missteps on COVID, like especially regarding masks, were both probably very influential and might have obscured some stuff. Because what we've seen certainly over the course of 2021 as, you know, Democrats who have been positioning themselves as like the pro-science party and the party that trusts experts have actually been in control of the federal government. And so some of those cross-cutting pressures where like you wanted to say you trusted Dr. Fauci, but you didn't want to say you trusted the Trump administration like no longer exist. We've seen that there are a lot of people who just do not trust the experts. And it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of what was attributed to early missteps on the part of the CDC and the FDA was, in fact, a damaging of their reputation among the limited population that had trusted them, plus the existing skepticism of a lot of people who might not have trusted them, even if they'd been very consistent out of the gate. And so we're really talking about problems that predate any of this and for which there isn't a really clear playbook for like once you have people who can point to specific things that you've done wrong and say this is why I don't trust you and once you have a population of people who even if they can't point to anything in particular you've done wrong say I don't feel that those people are speaking to me I they're not speaking for me they have you know I just I don't trust that they're on the level how you create a clear pipeline of communication so that your guidance will actually be followed is not something that we know how to do. And I would say, too, one of the things that I was uh, um, thinking about was comparing the CDC and the FDA to an institution that has done like really well, um, which is the Fed, the Federal Reserve, which has performed remarkably well during the pandemic. And just thinking about the clear differences between just the the setup of these organizations and their mandates, uh, you know, the Fed is extremely independent. I mean, 
relative to the CDC and FDA, extremely independent um, from uh, the political processes of Congress and the terms don't line up or anything like that. Jerome Powell cannot be fired and appointed at at, at will in the same way that the FDA and CDC uh, chiefs can be. And on top of that, their funding streams are not like, you know, no one is saying we're funding X program at the Fed via um, this line item in the budget. You just give most of the money just like given to the Federal Reserve for for those um, for their operations. And I think secondly, the big thing is like they have a very clear mandate. The Federal Reserve like is like we do these two things. Uh, We try to maximize employment and we try to, uh, you know, uh, limit inflation. And we, we, you know, that's what we're trying to do here at the Federal Reserve. And the CDC and FDA, I think one of the big things is like it's actually not quite clear to me that they all have like a a, a, a governing um, goal that they all fully understand and agree to. I think you can like think about this very clearly when you look at like what's going on with testing. You know, we just had a good episode Herman just did um, a couple weeks ago on uh, the America's testing failures. And I think one of the big takeaways there is that like there's not a like decision that's been made at this point around whether or not the point of testing is to make sure that I can know with really high degree of certainty that I am positive or negative from COVID or whether it's the goal is to have like kind of surveillance tracking to know like what is generally happening in this area? How should we be responding from a public health perspective? And the fact that that still has not generally been resolved is like really concerning. <laughs> and that's why you have a lot of this like really weird um, back and forth where uh, we cannot get a bunch of tests freely and cheaply available in the United States the way that you can see them in other countries. So I think a big thing is just thinking about like what can actually be changed here. I think it's possible you can make the CDC and the FDA a lot more independent from the government. I think it's harder to try to like mandate there, have like a specific outlook on how to approach problems like this, particularly because I think that they are very susceptible to public opinion, at least institutionally they have been, in a way that the Federal Reserve has has been able to be insulated from. Yeah, I mean, I'm also not sure that the track record indicates that you can make a federal agency more independent and more responsive to events at the same time. I mean, the the Fed is an interesting case here, as, as Jerusalem said, because it was both extremely independent I remember I once had an off-the-record interview with Jack Lew when he was Treasury Secretary, and I can't say anything else he said during it, but I asked something about the Fed, and he was like, I would never even answer anything off the record about the Fed because that would undermine the Fed's independence. Um, And another reporter told me that Tim Geithner had told them when he was Treasury Secretary that if any of his successors ever commented on the Fed, to tell him so he could go and kill them. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so like they have this insane, intense reputation for independence and they were incredibly fast moving. So just to like run down some things they did, they stood up wholly new facilities to buy up uh, loans to state and local governments, uh, which is something the Fed had never done before within like a week or two. They did the same thing for loans to big corporations that they had not like primarily invested in before. They'd mostly done government bonds or mortgage bonds. They set up these things called swap lines that basically allowed governments around the world to get dollars when they needed dollars to pay for stuff that is sold in dollars like oil. And you did all of this without Congress, just sort of very quickly. It's an emergency. I'm doing whatever I can. And I think part of what's interesting about the CDC, and this is something that Janine Irlandi, who's uh, a writer at the New York Times, who wrote an, a very, very good piece for the, the Times Magazine called uh, Can the CDC Be Fixed? One point she was making is just like, they don't have a lot of formal powers. They can declare sort of quarantines. They did this eviction moratorium that seems on extremely shaky legal ground uh, and like at the far limits of what their their powers might be. But they can't like they can't say all of a sudden we're going to send a testing kit to everyone in America every week uh, in case they need it. 
uh, they can't say we're going to to sort of mandate contact tracing for everyone in the country. They can't impose this vaccine mandate. Uh, when Biden wanted to do that, he had to go through through the occupational health channel and make it sort of a, a workplace safety requirement. And even their ability to collect data, which is is a very core part of what they do, and part of how they're meant to be an advisory agency to the president and in, in updating him and the administration on like the progress of outbreaks, they're heavily dependent on state and local health departments. And those data streams are not always reliable. Um, they're not always well integrated at the federal level. It's a lot of bureaucratic wrangling with individual agencies. And so I think some sometimes you get pushback from people in the CDC saying, you know, like we're trying our best, but we, we're we're given no power. We have to rely on the shaky data that's being sent to us by these like hacks in the Wyoming Department of Health. No disrespect to people in the Wyoming Department of Health. Just like <laughs> wow. Wow. Sake, sake, sake of example, <laughs> uh, the New Hampshire Department of Health say I'm from New Hampshire. I'm allowed to make fun of New Hampshire. Um, but I think like that kind of defense, while accurate as far as it goes, sort of only feeds into the broader thing of like this this is not an agency that's working um like uh regardless of whose fault it is like it cannot continue to be structured this way during the next outbreak the other thing that i think is worth pointing out if we're talking about the fed in particular as a comparison point and like i think that this is actually like a reason that it's a good comparison point and gets back to some stuff we've been talking about in episodes throughout the year most notably in the weeds time machine about the history of the fed is that like a lot of the Fed's job is not in its, you know, like it it stems from the powers that it has to do things unilaterally, but its job is to communicate clearly about its expectations and thus inform other actors in the economy so that, that things can unfold in a predictable way. And like in that respect, it is similar to the CDC's responsibility to get, you know, up-to-date information about public health and to disseminate best practices, except that the Fed is only talking really directly to other professionals. And there isn't the obligation. Like, in a world where the Fed was responsible for goosing consumer spending, for example, not by, like, cutting interest rates, but by saying, hey, everyone, the economy is doing really well. You should go spend a lot of money. Like, that might not be as easy for them to do. But because there are these intermediary mechanisms where they're able to communicate with people who know the rules of the game and do have every reason to trust them, and then those people, you know, those institutions are the ones that the public is actually interacting with, that makes it easier for that kind of transparent expectation setting work to happen. We're going to take a, a quick break, and then we're we're going to talk about a, a few other sort of failures, and and also talk about the FDA. Since so far we've been talking a lot about the CDC, so so stay with us. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, uh, so we've been discussing some CDC failures on messaging, especially around masks and some of the testing difficulties. Uh, but I wanted to dig more into the FDA in our second section. They approved vaccines very quickly by historical standards, uh, but they refused to combine phases of tests or do challenge trials where humans would be actively infected with COVID, uh, all of which could have sped up this process. Jerusalem, what do you make of their performance throughout COVID? Uh, you know, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, it's obviously and a lot of the criticisms that people have had of the CDC and the FDA and all these public health institutions has felt like, oh, you know, COVID is a, a huge international emergency, a scale which like no one's ever had to deal with before in a globalized world. But I think one of the things and that we've been talking about this here is that a lot of the problems with these institutions, including the FDA, is that these problems are are systemic even before um, COVID sort of hit. And, and this is something that Alex Tabarrok, who is a, an economist at George Mason University, has been um, harping on for a while. Like I remember, you know, and I went back and found this 2015 post that he wrote about um, the FDA being too conservative in its um, uh, approvals for new drugs. And the incentive structure is like really bad for them. It's not like not really fully, I guess, their fault here. Because like, essentially, like, you know, type one errors, like approving a bad drug, for instance, you're gonna get a bunch of hate for that. Like if you have like some kid who had like a really bad illness, and then a drug that you could approve give him gives him like, you know, I don't know, smallpox or whatever it is. I don't know how a drug would do that. But let's just say it did for, for <laughs> argument's sake. And, um, you know, that's there's gonna be TVs, cameras outside of his house, like his parents are gonna be freaking out, like all of this kind of pressure, like congressional uh, inquiry will occur and things like that. So you have a massive incentive not not to be approving drugs that have these kinds of negative side effects. But, you know, there's not that kind of countervailing issue and fear around not approving good drugs. Uh, you know, if you say, hey, my kid has this, you know, strange illness and they just say, hey, there's no drug available for you that's been deemed safe. You're just going to be like, OK, there's no drug available that's deemed safe. And you're not going to know to point the finger at the FDA. You're not going to know the increased likelihood of your kid being able to potentially have a good life or get over this disease or whatever. And so that kind of, you know, interplay is like really dangerous and problematic. And 
And Henry Miller, who's at the Hoover Institution now, but who worked for the FDA in the 80s and 90s, you know, recounted his own experience there. And he talked about how they were reviewing a drug for approval. And four months after the application was submitted, when the average time for a review was more than two and a half years, uh, basically everyone had decided that they were going to sign off on this drug, that it was obviously good. But his supervisor refused to sign off on it, even though he agreed that the data provided compelling evidence of the drug safety and effectiveness. Because, quote, if anything goes wrong, think about how bad it will look that we approve the drug so quickly. And, you know, it's easy to like dunk on this one guy or whatever for saying something like that. But it does say something about how we need to reform who's getting, uh, you know, pressure on these institutions, especially when um, Tabarrok cites quite a good amount of research showing that the the costs are actually quite high. That if you look over the course of how many drugs that have not been approved and, you know, the victims of these illnesses are people who likely are like, OK, well, I'm going to die anyway. So I probably would like to take an experimental drug if that's possible. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I, I'm glad that, you know, I think that this is kind of the biggest thematic concern with the FDA, right, where the concern with the CDC was to a large extent in its public health messaging function. The frustration with the FDA has largely been uh, how unresponsive uh, it seemed at times to the urgency of the pandemic. And like, you know, it if you want to point to a particular example, I think there was a lot of frustration uh, this time last year when it seemed like it was inevitable that the FDA was going to approve the you know Johnson and Johnson vaccine, and it hadn't yet, but it, everyone knew it was going to, and everyone knew it was going to at a certain time, and it was just it it for people who were following the news seemed like the only thing holding it up was bureaucratic intransigence and. I do think that that's really that this is exactly the kind of circumstance that, you know, the Alex Tabarrok situation doesn't take into account, that there are some times when people actually do know that there's an answer out there because it's it's something that such a large portion of the public is concerned about and wants to protect against and that then they can really pay attention to it. But I do think that it's it's a little bit easy to assume that there aren't any costs associated with approving something, even if it is totally safe. I think in particular, the fact that everything is still operating on an emergency use authorization, because that's the quicker track of the process for the FDA to engage in, has created at least a talking point. And I'm not, I don't want to be too confident in whether or not it's actually made some people vaccine skeptical who would not have been vaccine skeptical otherwise. But there was a certain amount of rhetorical, you know, certainly in the early months of the pandemic, the idea that this was not really FDA approved. And as the FDA moved further along in the process and kind of said, no, we're serious about this, that talking point went away. But it does seem to me that phrases like emergency use authorization or the careless language from the Trump administration, both publicly and privately last year, about how important it was to be able to announce that they had a vaccine available before the election, like that sort of stuff isn't great in terms of actually increasing uptake. I think it's just difficult to balance that with the like, present and urgent need for the people who were enthusiastic about getting vaccinated. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the politicization stuff is that I think a lot of people have started using it as a sort of like fully explanatory variable for what went wrong here. And I mean, there there was a lot of bad things like, you know, Trump wanted to have a emergency authorization for oleandrin. If anyone remembers that, it was a plant extract, which had absolutely no scientific backing. And uh, we found out later that it was because Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow.com, was like, 
had recently acquired a stake in the company and was developing, you know, experimental for a, in a company developing the experimental dietary supplement, which is, you know, I guess just clear, like uh, probably the best uh, um, anecdote of the Trump years is, is is just Mike Lindell's entire existence. But, um, uh, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it was I mean, beyond that, too, I mean, everyone remembers, of course, like all of the uh, efforts on um, the Trump administration to install changes in the communications of the CDC. I mean, they installed a, a spokesperson at the head of the agency. Her entire background was kind of being a, a gun rights advocate and doing things that have nothing to do with public health and didn't have any kind of particular expertise. And, you know, agency officials were terrified that basically uh, public communications were being used to pump up the administration. But at the same time, too, I would say this is like, it's not really clear to me that we think in general that it's bad. There's not political pressure on these agencies. For instance, there's a story that was really popular in Stat News that talked about how, quote, Trump had launched an all out attack on the FDA. Will the scientific integrity of it survive? And one of the things they talk about is how Trump had aggressively supported a, quote, right to try legislation, which became law in 2018. And essentially it was that, you know, patients with terminal illnesses should be able to request unapproved drugs from pharmaceutical companies as a last resort, even if they haven't been fully vetted for safety and effectiveness and gotten that full authorization. And that to me seems good. It seems like there should be pressure on the FDA and the CDC to be doing things like that and to be behaving that way. And I think it's like very weird that we are mixing up these things. Like, yeah, it's really bad that Trump was like using the MyPillow CEO guy to like push for certain uh, drugs to be authorized. But it's good that he was doing other things. And I think that like the problem here is not the politicization. I mean, I think politicization is its own problem. But the end result here is like the process by which these agencies are determining which of these things are good and bad is partially also their own kind of politics, it feels like, where they really just didn't like the idea of any kind of political body indicating that their level of reservedness around engaging in quick authorizations was was worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, I, I've sort of mentally compartmentalized the the politicization concern from the sort of is the institutional culture at the CDC or FDA optimal concerns, in part because the institutional cultures sort of exist throughout time. So like the, the, the FDA being extremely conservative on approving new drugs relative to European regulatory agencies and stuff is like a very well-known fact that goes back to at least thalidomide. The FDA's sort of superhero origin story if you talk to people who who are in the FDA um or or love the FDA is that whereas most european drug agencies were totally cool with thalidomide as a new drug for mothers and, and pregnant women the FDA held the line and and would not allow it and so they had generations of kids with with horrific uh life-threatening disabilities caused by that drug and and we didn't and good on us and the the other side of that is is what people like Alex Tavrock call the invisible graveyard of people who have died because of a, a lower pharmaceutical innovation in the United States who might not be if we were more lenient in terms of letting drugs on the market. And that's a, a whole mess of things. But it's my point is that it's it's very independent of Trump. And I think the the culture that was asserting itself in 2020, 2021 was in part a reaction against politicization, but I think it was was also just sort of how these agencies have always been. And one thought that occurs to me on politicization, as long as we're talking about it, is like, there was a lot of discourse about norms during the Trump administration. And I think I was mostly on the side of like, people are talking about norms as a way to avoid talking about first order concerns like Trump wants to take your health care away. Trump is putting kids in cages on the border. 
Trump is is lowering legal immigration. And so people instead talk about him like contravening norms of what the president is and isn't supposed to say in certain circumstances to seem high minded and nonpartisan and, and, and hide the ball. But like you should not bully the CDC into saying things that offend religious constituencies that are important to you was definitely a norm. <laughs> and it's a norm that would not have occurred to me as especially important until 2020, but turns out to have been like, I don't know how many people died because Trump refused to tell choirs not to sing, but it seems like the number's not zero. And this is a really concrete case where those norms seem super important and and not like worth laughing off. And uh, the Fed has some legal protections for its independence. But a lot of this stuff is norms. The stuff about Tim Geithner going and beating you up if you uh, if you talk about the Fed as Treasury Secretary, that's just a norm. That's just like a dude having an opinion and forcing it on other dudes who share his job. However much I want the norms in these agencies to change, uh, I revised my feeling on how important norm erosion under under Trump was in light of some of those, those politicization controversies. This is making me wonder about the counterfactual in which this happens less than three years into the Trump presidency. Because from, like, where I'm standing, it seemed that the federal government in early 2020 was in a pretty weak point in terms of its ability to use institutional culture to resist the political whims of the White House. And, like, maybe this is me over-indexing on immigration, but it, it does kind of seem, like, logical if you play it out that three years of career civil servants, you know, getting fed up and leaving and three years of political appointees getting like urgent messages from the White House and, you know, being in danger of like losing their jobs if something if President Trump decided they were doing a bad job, like that that's going to take a toll. And turning the kind of politics of it aside, I do wonder what the response might have looked like in a world where, and like for better or worse, right? Like it's entirely possible that a, an FDA where like everyone was a holdover from the Obama administration might have been even slower in approving vaccines because they would have been like, look, we have a critical mass of choke points in the agency that we control. And it is very important to us that we not be seen as intervening on the president's behalf. So, you know, it, that that can kind of go both ways, going back to what Jerusalem was saying about the importance being, you know, the kind of merits of a policy being kind of independent of concerns of uh, about independence. But it does seem to me that, you know, for all the concern about whether or not the U.S. is prepared for the next pandemic and has learned from the last one. And like, frankly, for all the concern, for all the, the truth that in meaningful ways, the Biden administration has not like hasn't done a like 180 degree turnaround on the things that failed under Trump. It does seem that the U.S. kind of got shown at a particularly bad moment for the federal government to get stuff done. And that makes it difficult to know what the baseline would have been for you know, Trump being Trump and saying things, but not having the kind of pull within the agencies that he ultimately did. 
there's a big problem that interacted with the CDC having to deal with all this at once, which was just that like the government's technological systems are like really, really bad. My understanding from the article that Dylan mentioned earlier on New York Magazine is that the CDC maintains more than 100 separate disease-specific computer systems. And also the CDC cannot require that any state health agency or local agency like input their data in any particular way or into any particular system. There's like one anecdote from that article, which shows how there was a uh, E. coli outbreak involved Involving romaine lettuce and like officials had to like base these decisions on which products to pull from the shelves on like data that's being screenshotted and texted <laughs> to epidemiologists and health officials. I mean, that to me is just like so indicative of like a larger breakdown in governance that we already know about. And like it is clear to me from like having lived in and around the D.C. area and my father's like a software engineer who does like cloud computing for the federal government and different agencies and like advising and people on whether or not like their systems are, are doing well. And it's just like this is a conversation has been happening like for like decades that the government, the federal government does not have technological systems that are up to date. It's aware of this problem. It has billions and billions of dollars in order to rectify it and like does not do this. And I think that like, you know, it is again, not uh, what I said at the top of the episode. This is not a question of like whether or not people who are smart, who are in government are aware of this and want to fix it. The bigger problem ultimately also seems to be just that when there are moments of crisis, every single dollar is being spent on the crisis. And when there are moments not of crisis, A, like sometimes there's not funding available to fix the problem, but there's also B, not attention and like adequate pressure to be able to actually institute institutional reforms, which, you know, I think this is like a really, really like terrifying issue um, for us to not be taking even more seriously, not just because I feel like COVID and COVID strains aren't going to go away, but because pandemics are likely for a lot of various reasons to could actually increase in frequency. And that's something that if we don't have these things set up to adequately respond, it is concerning, you know, millions of people are going to die. And we should not, I think the like my usual take pre-COVID is that, you know, if hundreds of thousands of Americans died, that that would force institutional reform because it would just be so unacceptable. Um, I'm pretty sure that we just reached 800,000 Americans dead. Um, That is not the uh, uh, trajectory that I am witnessing right now when looking at these agencies. My main takeaway from from this discussion, and this is this is a boring takeaway, but I'm going to do it because this is the weeds, (laughs) is that we need a nonpartisan commission. No, really? Um, So hear me out. Okay. I I heard all the debates about this when it came to to January 6th. I agree that with January 6th, it was kind of a red herring. Any like investigation into January 6th was going to be like insanely politicized. One half the spectrum was never going to listen to it. Uh it was literally a dispute over like who got to win the presidential election. Uh and so there was no way for that to happen without extreme polarization. COVID is an f- extremely polarized issue, but I think like In Congress, you have a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans who can look at what happened and say, you know what, the masking advice was screwed up. You know what, like this this thing where they they like botched the tests in early 2020, like that was bad. That was just like objectively bad, no matter how you look at it. And while the 9-11 Commission like has sometimes become this sort of like totemic example in these discussions of like an agency that got stuff done, I don't have faith that you would get the extent of reforms uh, we got to intelligence agencies after the 9-11 commission to the CDC and FDA after a like COVID response review commission. I like perhaps naively think that Congress would be more receptive to it than they would on something like January 6th. Like a report that said, actually, the CDC needs to get better data in X, Y, Z ways. I think you can you can get both Mitch McConnell and like Chuck Schumer on board with that. Actually, 
it was bad that they screwed up masking guidance seems almost uncontroversial at this point for, for anyone who's like answering that honestly. And I think in part it's we we're we're pulling all this together from some really interesting investigative reporting that's been happening. The masking thing was all out in the open because it was a failure of messaging, but there are all these other failures, like the testing one, that had to be revealed by a team at the Wall Street Journal investigating it. And just a, a thorough like investigation and accounting of what went wrong seems like it actually has the potential to like produce some legislation that that might not be completely doomed from the outset by polarization. But maybe I'm just like a, a hopeless romantic. I mean, what I would say is that I feel like the, the real problem is that there is such a large sense of anti-bureaucracy, anti-government like sentiment that has kind of really put a bunch of government officials on edge and bureaucrats on edge in response to like, I think anything like this that could occur where it's hard to disentangle like, you know, the very real, like a lot of shit went really badly and you guys aren't self-policing and self-changing in any real way, whether it's because of funding, whether it's because of whatever it is, structure, like you're not doing it and it's costing like a ton of lives. And also like, you know, any attack, anything, anything that's kind of like including a lot of the Republican rhetoric on um, against the CDC and FDA is necessarily going to come off as like very anti-status. And it kind of brings us back to like Dara's earlier point about like, does that end up potentially undermining trust even more so in these institutions? I mean, I'm team, I think when the government holds self-accountable, people in general feel better about the government. And I think people should just be straightforward about it. I think one of the biggest failures of the FDA and CDC's messaging is that they're trying to treat people like they're dumber than, and people can like tell that's what's happening. If you're just telling people like, oh, like the reason we're not recommending masks is because we think that you might compensate by doing less social distancing. Like that's treating people like they're like children in a playpen that you're trying to like manipulate. And like that kind of behavior, I think to me is like, I understand understand why there's like this fear of like just giving people the information but it's clear at this point that it's eroded norms um to a really severe point so i don't know dylan i'm not as i'm not as optimistic as you are but i think that it, you know i'm not i'm not a big fan of commissions but i guess it, it couldn't hurt it couldn't hurt on that rousing note we're going to take a, a our second break uh when we come back we have a white paper that is also about covid you can't escape it uh, but it's on a slightly different I issue, which is exactly how many people have, have died due to COVID. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. All right, uh, we're back in our last section of the episode and our last new episode of 2021 is on a paper by Christopher Room, who's an economist at the University of Virginia. Uh, the paper is titled Excess Deaths in the United States During the First Year of COVID-19. 
It is not a clever title, but it's exactly what the paper's about. So the big takeaway here is that if you compare deaths from March 2020 through February 2021 to the number of deaths you would have expected without COVID, you get a little under 650,000 excess deaths. So to compare that to, to what we thought before, I double-checked with the Our World and Data Tracker, which, which tracks all the official death numbers uh, in, in countries around the world. And officially, as of the end of February 2021, the death toll in the U.S. from COVID was 514,193 people. So Room is finding that excess deaths were about 25% higher than the explicit COVID total that the CDC and, and then Our World and Data are reporting. And to be clear, Room is not saying that these are all COVID deaths. Uh, he has a separate estimate for that that's, that is a little bit higher than the official COVID total, but, but not that much higher. But he's including everything that might have happened to increase deaths relative to the sort of pre-2020 baseline. So if you died of pneumonia because of like shortages of hospital beds in 2020, that should be showing up in his numbers. The hard thing with doing this kind of research is that you have to establish a baseline. You have to estimate how many people would have died if COVID hadn't happened. And that's always going to require a lot of assumptions. Uh, room is extrapolating based on the decade before COVID, but it's hard. And, and there were a lot of things that changed in that decade. We had the opioid epidemic. We had some progress against things like HIV and AIDS because of, of PrEP. There's a lot happening, and there's always room for error when you're trying to, to establish that baseline. Anyway, Jerusalem, Dara, what did you make of the paper? Did it change your mind on anything? What, what seemed like the big takeaways to you? Papers like this are always my favorite because conceptually it's extremely simple. Like all he's doing is he's saying, what are the actual number of deaths? And let's subtract the expected deaths if COVID doesn't exist. And that's, that's basically the, the the overall math in the paper. And then you're going to get excess deaths from that. And then like, as Dylan, you just mentioned, like the really difficult part of that is figuring out like, what is it actually, what is a counter, how do you build a counterfactual world and accurately say like how many people would have died if COVID has, hadn't existed. And that requires like mapping out a lot of what COVID did. It, it requires a lot of mapping out um, exactly what was going on in like previous years and building a counterfactual world that is accurate, that is not being confounded by, you know, there's a lot of variation if you look in the paper. You can look at the 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 year to years from previous years in the previous decade, and there's like a lot of differences. There's also some like weird variation that happens every January where there's a much larger uncertainty band than in other months. So there's a bunch to correct for and a bunch that we don't know why that there are differences. And so that's what he's trying to investigate in this paper. And I think the top line number is is obviously interesting. It's uh, you know, as as Dylan mentioned, like the the big thing is that he does find six hundred thousand excess deaths. But I think the heterogeneity when you look at the different demographic groups is what I found most interesting. Mm. So what we already knew is that for people above age 65, like almost all the deaths are concentrated here. So he finds 3.5 million actual deaths, 2.6 million deaths are people above 65. He finds um, 640,000 excess deaths, 450,000 of those excess deaths are for people above 65. And then what I think is interesting is that for people who are under 25, which we you know we expect those people are not going to be um, affected by COVID much, there's a really high proportion of um, their excess deaths have nothing to do directly to COVID at all and are attributed to a bunch of other like potential factors. In particular, we saw homicides going up last year. But also one of the things that I think is really interesting is like um, you know vehicle deaths went up last year. We talked about this on the show, but like I want to make 
like clear, like usually in economic downturns, vehicle deaths tend to go down. Um, and also vehicles mile traveled, um, you know, did go down. And what we know from anecdotes, I don't know if there's any actual research. I haven't I haven't seen this yet, but like I know from anecdotal uh, um, findings and, and reporting that like risky driving behavior is likely what's driving a lot of this. And, you know, the open roads are maybe in, incentivizing people to drive faster than they would have otherwise because more people are staying home. One, one big thing that Christopher Room also like looks at is in his research is on deaths of despair, which we've talked about on the show a bit. Um, so obviously this is the Ann, Angus uh, Deaton and Ann Case research around um, whether or not people's deaths due to suicides, drug overdoses, and alcohol has been going up. And, and they found that, that that it has, especially in particular for particular subgroups, um, like white non-college educated men. Um, so he finds there's like a lot of heterogeneity here too when you look at deaths of despair. So um, suicides are actually below what we would have expected. He finds this like quite robustly. But drug deaths are 30% higher than we would have expected. And we're yeah. not really sure why this is the case. It's potentially like a recession effect, but it also might be the fact that there's this thing that Herman Lopez, um, may he rest in peace, um, wrote about on <laughs> the Vox website, uh, is that, you know, there's a fentanyl breakthrough that occurred right around the time that COVID actually hit the U.S., which is fentanyl usually stayed east of the Mississippi. And then for some reason, um, it actually started moving west right around the time that COVID hit. So there might be a supply driver to why there's actually a lot more overdose deaths happening. So anyway, there's a lot of like really interesting small things going on in this data. The other thing I would point out with regard to drug overdose deaths in particular is like a lot of the residential facilities that are supposed to be supporting people who use drugs had to reduce capacity substantially, just like every other residential facility, which means on a pretty basic level, a lot of people, including people who were getting released from prison under compassionate release policies, would not have been able to get like the full support. And this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg for a phenomenon that has been described as kind of a... uh, an experiment in demolishing the social safety net for COVID purposes, because especially during early lockdowns, there was kind of a sudden tearing away of a lot of things that vulnerable people are used to uh, in terms of supporting them and providing monitoring and accountability. And like, it is not, it is not that surprising, whatever your problems with like the rehab industry might be, that if you have to, as a matter of law, reduce your bed capacity substantially, you can help fewer people and more people are going to be left out at risk. Related to that, though, in thinking about the kind of extent to which our healthcare capacity relies on the physical, like how many beds are in a facility where people can help you and how many people do we have to help them, like the... Updating of the excess deaths information to attribute a higher share to non-COVID causes is particularly concerning for me right now, because as of this particular moment in time when we're taping this episode, and one assumes there won't be any like fundamental change in the science between now and when it comes out, but with COVID, who knows? Um, we're dealing with the Omicron variant, which preliminary indications are that it is less severe than previous variants, but much more contagious, which public health experts are already warning that that is, even if it doesn't lead to more deaths, going to lead to an increase in hospitalizations over what we're seeing right now, which will lead to the same hospital capacity concerns that we've seen recurrently in various places in the U.S. throughout the pandemic. And so if 
we have actually been wrong all this time about just how much this has been a COVID problem versus a COVID, but also the capacity of the healthcare system problem, then a strain of COVID that is not going to create as many deaths in the first category, but is going to put more strain on the second should be especially worrisome to us. Yeah, the the point about Drug deaths is is particularly interesting to me. The CDC is, has also found a, a fairly massive increase in uh in drug deaths, the same way that Room does by their numbers. In 2019, we had about 70,600 overdose deaths, and then we had 93,000 in 2020. So that's 23,000 extra deaths, particularly among young people. Uh, that might account for a substantial amount of the the under 25 excess deaths that that came up in the study. And I think, as Jerusalem was saying, a lot of it is is fentanyl. I was looking at a Commonwealth uh, Fund report on this that found that in 2015, only 18% of overdose deaths involved synthetic opioids. That's fentanyl, carfentanyl, other other sort of synthesized uh, opiates. And in 2020, it was more than 60%. So the share that's attributable to them has tripled over the course of five years. But one thing that was particularly interesting to me and, and sort of consonant with a lot of reporting we've seen recently is that like meth seems to be back in a really big way. Deaths involving meth increased by about 50% just in the last year. The National Institute of Drug Abuse found that between uh, 2015 and 2019, as part of a recent study, that it the number of overdose deaths from meth tripled. Uh, so we, we've been fighting a fairly specific opiate battle on drug abuse, and that's still where the bulk of the deaths are I don't want to sort of obscure that, but one thing some of these numbers are suggesting to me is that that we have a stimulant problem as well, and that probably requires different solutions. Uh, we've we've done a lot on naloxone, on replacement therapies like uh, buprenorphine, methadone. All of these are very targeted to, to opiates, and we probably need a new set of of techniques uh, if we want to do harm reduction and and curb deaths in a stimulant-based drug death uh, surge. One of the things that's uh, concerning to me generally uh, whenever this stuff happens is is that it feels like nobody wants to uh Nobody wants to address the 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 supply issues. Everyone really likes talking about like the demand potentially determinants of 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 drug abuse. Even the popularity of the you know the deaths of despair literature seems to be in particular because like the media and like you know politicians really struck on this idea of you know the lower income high school educated you know white man living in the Midwest who is you know suffering from this kind of despair and engaging in this and you know doing drugs as a result or being preyed upon by um, pharmaceutical companies and uh you know falling susceptible to that it just to me like you know i'm not saying that there's nothing to any of that but it just feels like it's it's very it's always really disappointing when like you know that's the kind of the dominant narrative you hear both from politicians and from from uh media outlets but then like you like look down into these numbers and you don't always see like alcohol and suicides tracking with drugs in the way that you would if it was just Mm -hmm. despair you don't like see it happening to people who are just all poor in a way that you would if if it was just poverty driving it like there is something going on on here with um, uh, the way that supply markets for drug markets for um, these uh, are interplaying in in different places in different regions of the country. And we see very clearly that when fentanyl becomes available in your area, more people die of fentanyl. And so like we should probably figure out a way to not make that happen. And I'm not saying that that's like an easy there's an easy solution to that, but it feels like it would be better if more of the rhetoric was focused on that. And like less on trying to like look at these overall trends and draw like large sweeping social generalizations about where America is now, which, you know, 
Who knows? It is positively wild to hear you saying that we focus too much on issues of demand and not enough on issues of supply <laughs> coming. Like as somebody who covers a beat where like it is routine for politicians to pretend that if we could somehow like just crack down more, we could prevent drugs from entering the U.S. and therefore no one would ever get addicted to drugs. Like, this is a massive industry and the more pressure you put on it, the more sophisticated it gets. And while I'm not saying that, like, the U.S. government is doing a perfect job of preventing drugs from being imported into the country, it's, like, also true that there's new that there are new techniques being developed every day, that there's a really strong incentive to push supply to other drugs once there's a crackdown in one drug. And so, you know, those aren't really easy problems either. And they're problems that have pretty substantial, like, downsides. If you, for example, you know, conflate, like, drug smuggling with human smuggling and decide that an anti, that, like, because there are people who profit from both, that you have to prosecute people who are being smuggled the same way you would prosecute them if they were, you know, involved in the criminal enterprise. Like, there are all kinds of of mostly political downsides here, but it's also just, like, I don't, I haven't seen a focus on supply that yeah, is to be clear, able I'm to, not pro war on drugs. That was not no, what no, I was no, 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 no. I know. I just I don't know what a what an what a non war on drugs supply focused conversation looks like. We just haven't been able to model that because it does. Well, come, I think I would just say we would stop. We would stop saying that people can just. We should stop making people choose. Like if people were happier, they wouldn't choose drugs. Like that's <laughs> clearly that's not yeah. what's going to happen. I mean, and the only thing I would add here is that as part of me hammering home that meth is back. Meth is is a harder supply problem than heroin. Like yep. heroin, you have yep. to import from the Golden Triangle, Afghanistan, somewhere. I have a lot of family in Hawaii, and they have the lowest rate of opiate deaths uh, in the United States. Because if you are a drug trafficker, it does not make a lot of sense to send a, like a special shipment to this weird string of islands in the middle of the Pacific. But what they do have is a ton of meth, because you can make meth in Hawaii, and. I, I think we're in for another round of Sudafed fights um, yeah. as that ticks we're, up. We're building back better. The American drug industry is resurging. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and with that, I think we should wrap. <laughs> <laughs> On that honestly stirring note about America's economy from Dara, <laughs> that is all for us today. And that is all for us in terms of new episodes uh, in 2021. Uh, thank you so much to Fox's Jerusalem Dempsis and ProPublica's Dara Lynn for joining the panel and for all their work on this series, America's Public Health Experiment. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Uh, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. Uh, be sure to sign up for our newsletter for more arguments and insights from the Weeds team. Uh, go to vox.com slash weedsletter. This is going to be our last new episode for a bit. Uh, Vox Audio is hunkering down for the holiday break, so you won't hear much from us until next year. But we are still publishing an episode next Tuesday. It's just going to be an older one from earlier this year. We will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>